Hello and welcome to A History of Maryland. This is episode one. Lie back and think of crab cakes. Thank you for joining me. My name is Jared Books. Today we're going to be taking a trip back to the primordial ooze from which the political entity called Maryland would eventually slither. It's the turn of the 17th century in England. The stars are about to align and the ball is about to start rolling. But first we're going to need to set the scene so that the events, people, and actions which led to the founding of Maryland make some kind of sense. Now I'm not gonna lie, this is all going to sound a little bit like... Meanwhile, Frederick William, busily engaged in defending against the three great powers, the province of Silesia, which he had seized in the war of Austrian succession against his word, yes, I remember. was now dependent on... Personally, I love that stuff. But to many of you, it may seem like a zillion light years away from Camden Yards or Captain Chesapeake. Just please trust me, I promise this is going somewhere. And contextually speaking, this has everything to do with both the founding of Maryland and about the first 50 years or so of its history. So it's important. We're also going to introduce the architect of the founding of Maryland, George Calvert, and we'll follow his rise, or was it his fall, to the title of Lord Baltimore. There is much to get through in today's episode, so let us not tarry. Strap on your codpiece, bone up on your Shakespeare, lie back and think of crab cakes as we blast off by means of my magical rocket ship from beautiful downtown Thurmont, Maryland, circa 2017 of our common era, to England during the final days of Queen Elizabeth I, circa 1602-ish AD. In a pop movie version of history, the exhilarating national high of defeating the Spanish Armada in 1588 would be the glorious ending. The invasion has been thwarted, crowds throng the streets to cheer their beloved queen, who having bravely steered the nation through its greatest crisis basks in the adoration of her united people. And she reigns happily ever after. But history ain't really like that. Smashing the Armada didn't end the wars. Conflicts with Spain and then Ireland dragged on for the rest of her life. These wars cost money. Raising the money required taxation, land seizures, sales of offices, and grants of monopolies. At street level, this begats all kinds of popular anger and resentment, and the powers that be have to turn up the dial on an atmosphere of surveillance, scapegoating, and fear in order to maintain control. Meanwhile, the aging queen began losing her grip on direct influence and power as longtime friends and allies in court began to die off. Political factionalism became more pronounced. A whole ecosystem of aristocrats, great and small, scrambled to use the levers of power to either cash in on the chaos or to desperately evade becoming victims of it themselves. I know court life in the Elizabethan era has a romantic, foppish veneer of wax-mustachioed guys prancing around in tights, Competing mostly in a game of who has the poofiest collar. But make no mistake about it, this was a political jungle full of scary and dangerous people who gambled daily with their fortunes, their freedom, and their lives. The political winds were gale force and changed direction constantly. The line between being the king's favorite and being beheaded as a traitor was cellophane thin. Not like the good brand name cellophane either, but that cheap stuff that's always tearing and sticking together before you can finish wrapping anything. Anyway, 
the point is, statecraft during this era was a cross between a snake pit and a shark tank. It would all be crazy and confusing enough if we're only about power, land, and money. People being people, I think it mostly is about power, land, and money. But there are at least two other major socio-political dimensions that infect everything in this period and that are important to our narrative. Political theory and religion. First of all, there were competing philosophies on the, where the right to rule came from. Over the centuries, the rhetoric used by kings and nobles to justify their power struggles began to coalesce into concrete political theory. There were absolutists who believed in the divine right of kings. As king, I am God's anointed, his instrument on earth, and my will is his will. And God wills that you build me a luxurious hunting lodge. The key selling point of the philosophy to those who were not kings was the maintenance of order. A strong king, guiding with a firm hand, is the surest course to peace in the land and prosperity. This had a strong appeal in an age of mob anarchy, gang wars between rival noble factions, and the ever-looming threat of invasion from Spain or from France. On the other side are those who believe that good governance depended on power being derived from the common law and from the people. By people at this point in history, we mean representative bodies of landed men and their power to have certain checks on the monarchy's legal authority, particularly in the form of levying taxes. Though the balance of power has ebbed and flowed for generations, the idea that the king could be bounded by law is a popular point of English pride and identity. And while this issue is not on the front burner right this second, it's going to become a big, big deal in just a few years. But far and away the greatest social dynamic at this point is religion. It means just about everything to just about everyone. In a very, very general sense, you could divide religion in England at this time into three subgroups. The Anglicans, the Puritans, and the Catholics. Anglicanism, or the Church of England, is the official state religion. It's considered Protestant, but mostly by default. When he was refused a divorce by the Pope, Elizabeth's dad, Henry, severed ties with Rome, seized church properties, and put himself in charge of the nation's church apparatus. Henceforth, rulers and ministers tinkered with church liturgies as they saw fit, chopping off a few of the obvious popey bits, but often keeping a good amount of the old church intact for ritual and familiarity's sake. At first, this caused an uproar and social unrest from the people and the clergy, but it was nothing a little sheer brutality couldn't keep in check. One church, one king. That was the idea. To stray from the state church was dabbling in treason. Church attendance was compulsory. Those who tried to shrink away from this duty, both Catholic and Puritan, were termed recusants. And they could be subject to harsh penalties and punishments. Oaths of supremacy were another way to ensure conformity to the Church of England. If you wanted to hold office or a church position, or even study at a university, you had to swear allegiance to the monarch and affirm their position as the supreme governor of the church. Obviously, this was a tricky situation for devout Catholics whose supreme governor of the church was the Pope. Well, you could always, you know, lie, take the oath with crossed fingers behind your back, and a lot of people did. But they might have to answer for it when they face their creator. And in this world, they likely faced harsher punishments if they were caught breaking that oath. 
as well as the stink eye they'd get from more principled Catholics in their circle of family, friends, and connections. Long story short, it worked. By the end of Elizabeth's reign, Anglicanism was the established way for the majority in England, and most especially for anyone who wanted a smoother ride on the avenues of power. Next, we have the Puritans, which is sort of a catch-all term for the more radical Protestants, mostly from the reformed movements like Calvinism. Theologically speaking, once Martin Luther had broken the religious shackles to Rome, the massive mutating power of Protestantism had been released. Thanks in part to increased literacy, printing presses, and vernacular Bibles, people were beginning to interpret Christianity for themselves. They began basing their ideas on the actual scripture, not on church doctrine or tradition. Religious sects and congregations formed, reformed, and evolved constantly. By the time of our narrative, Reformed Protestants in neighboring Scotland had made Presbyterianism the official religion there. And England had its fair share of those who thought the state church was just Catholic light, and that it needed to be stripped down and purified. Hence the pejorative Puritan. Efforts to repress these reformer groups by both the Anglicans and the Catholics had only hardened and radicalized them, and soon they become a serious political force. Finally, there are the Catholics, those who stayed true to the old Roman church. Definitely a repressed minority at this point, mostly worshiping in secret, but one which still refuses to disappear. Legally, they can't hold office or real power in England, but there were still some moneyed and influential Catholic families in the provincial areas. As we'll see, even though in theory the laws against Catholics are incredibly repressive, the reality on the ground was a little more ambiguous and nuanced, especially in relation between the Catholic subjects and their king. When the Stuarts take the throne in 1603, religion is going to become more and more intertwined with that political struggle I had talked about earlier, between the power of the king and the power of the parliament. On one hand, the king is happy to talk a big game about the evils of popery and beat up on the Catholic minority when pandering for popularity with the Protestant majority. But he didn't want to take it too far. Because at the end of the day, the real threat to the king's power wasn't Catholics. It was the exclusively Protestant English parliament who were trying to clip his wings. And those Puritan busybodies who were trying to dictate to him how to run his church. For the Catholics' part, they were often staunch royalists and allies to the king. Because while the king could be repressive, he was the only thing standing in the way of those hardline nutjobs in Parliament who were constantly trying to bring the hammer down on them. The more the king shielded Catholics as a way to check his political opposition, the more his political opposition attacked Catholics as a way to check him. If you wanted to get elected and have popular support, being vehemently anti-Catholic was usually a pretty safe bet. To Protestants of all stripes, Catholics represented a monolithic boogeyman. They were agents of the Pope and fifth columnists for England's traditional enemies, the Spanish, the French, and Irish recalcitrants, both Anglo-Norman and Gaelic-Irish. These fears were not without some basis. Less than 50 years earlier, Bloody Mary had brought Catholics back into power, and the result had been a wave of repression, exile, and execution for many Protestants. And they weren't too hip on letting that ever happen again. And this was exactly the sort of thing on everybody's mind during Elizabeth's final days. As the Virgin Queen withdrew into an almost catatonic depression. The end was near, and she had neither produced an heir, nor seemed willing to name one. 
There are lots of theories on why she never married. For me, I, I think it's mostly got to come down to the fact that her throne was a powder keg of domestic factions and foreign threats. As a woman, she'd be the junior partner in any political marriage. In order to maintain her personal power and autonomy, as well as the autonomy of her country, she couldn't marry. Even after it was biologically infeasible for her to produce an heir, she refused to name one. Most likely, I think this is because if she did, every power broker in court would be busy sucking up to the new guy. And she could find herself out of power and packed off to the Tudor-era equivalent of an old folks' home. There are precedents for this in England. There are also precedents of deposed kings being suffocated under mattresses before they can become an inconvenient rallying point for opposition groups. Finally, something to keep in mind while trying to interpret the decisions and actions of royalty. There's an X factor which always seems to get ignored by historians. When you're dealing with someone who's been raised since birth with the belief that they are gods among men, weighted on hand and foot, often in an incredibly cold atmosphere of extreme violence, paranoia, and intrigue, you're dealing with a mindset that in our modern pedestrian world, we'd refer to as being clinically completely f***ing nuts. Just something I hope everyone keeps in the back of their head when they're learning about their favorite kings and queens. If you take them out of the immediate context of their surroundings, they're probably maniacs. We'd say, those people got issues. But I have digressed. If you have managed to stay awake to this point, congratulations. For those of you who have dozed off, it's late 1602, and England is once again staring down the barrel of yet another succession crisis, and all the guaranteed civil war and general suckiness that will inevitably entail. But while Elizabeth stares forlornly into space, her Secretary of State is working busily behind the scenes to try to avoid this scenario. His name is Robert Cecil, and in him, we have finally reached the first domino in the series of people and events that will lead to the current state of Maryland. Because this is a history of Maryland. Did you know that? It's true. History of Maryland. For Cecil and many others, the obvious choice for successor to Elizabeth was James Stuart, who was currently reigning in Scotland as King James VI. James hit all of the prerequisite bases. Protestant? Check. Solid claim to the throne? Check. He was Elizabeth's first cousin, twice removed, and he was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. He wasn't a woman. He wasn't a child. He already had male heirs of his own, and he had some real-world experience at kingship, successfully juggling rival factions in the Scottish court. Placing him on the English throne would also have the interesting effect of merging England and Scotland under one king, as well as potentially hitting the reset button on decades of hostility between Spain and England. For some, those last two points were more of a bug than a feature, and there were still powerful people backing other candidates. So James' ascendancy to the throne wasn't a foregone conclusion. For one thing, the queen was still alive, and she hadn't declared him her heir, and she still had the juice to throw a wrench in the whole operation. So Cecil began a secret correspondence with James, feeding him inside information and advice on how to best approach the queen to keep her on side. Elizabeth had very specific and demanding expectations on the way she thought she should be spoken to. On the other hand, James was a consummate, self-important know-it-all. Not only does he know what's best for you, he's the type of guy who would literally write a book to tell you why you're wrong and why you should think exactly the way he does. 
so the potential for an oil and water reaction between him and the queen was highly likely. The basic thrust of the messages, once they were decoded, came down to something like, All right, look, when you're talking to the queen, don't bring up the succession thing, okay? You're just gonna trigger bad stuff. Be nice. Flatter her. Be her friend. And I'll take care of laying the groundwork on this side of the board. Which Cecil did, including stationing troops in strategic areas, just in case declaring James King didn't go over as well as planned. It turns out he had little to worry about. Most people just wanted a smooth succession, and many people, of all religious factions, were hopeful about James's role. He brought a clean slate and a potential reboot on the whole draggy scene of Elizabeth's later years. The Queen finally died in the early morning hours of March 24, 1603. James was declared king the same day, and when he made his way down for his coronation four months later, King James VI of Scotland was crowned King James I of England. And yes, he's that King James I, he of King James Bible fame. And who stood to benefit the most from this momentous moment? Why, the man who just pulled off the succession for James, Robert Cecil. Cecil's place as the most trusted and powerful man in court is sealed. He'll gain title and land and for the next nine years, he will be the center of everything in his capacity as Secretary of State, Treasurer, and Spymaster. Most famously, breaking up the gunpowder plot in 1605. The one with militant Catholic Guy Fawkes. That guy who intended to blow up the King and the Parliament and usher in a Catholic regime using James's daughter as a puppet queen. That guy whose face will weirdly and almost inexplicably come to represent entirely different forms of radicalism some 400 years later. Robert Cecil will have a fascinating career, but what's important to the story of Maryland isn't Cecil specifically, though as we'll see, he will lend his name to a county in Maryland in a sort of second-hand way. What's important to us is his political rise and how it'll affect a young man he had recently hired on as a secretary and a clerk. A young man who'd be ushered into the highest echelons of power by riding the wave of Cecil's success and patronage. As you may have guessed, that young man's name was George Calvert. So unfortunately, we're going to end it there for today. Uh, I've decided to uh, split up episode one into two halves. Uh, the reasons being, uh, one, it's just taking longer than I thought it would. And since it's going to be on YouTube, it's just it makes it more convenient to have it in shorter bits. And I just want to get something up there because this might take a while. Also, if you can't tell, I've been slurring through half of this. I'm having some problems with my teeth and part of my face is numb. And basically, I'm just I'm risking life and limb to bring you a history of Maryland. And uh, I don't know if I, I might have to go to the dentist and get some teeth pulled or something. And, and that could make things take longer. So I just wanted to get something out there. So please join me for the second half, which I'm working on and we will be recording soon. We will introduce you properly to George Calvert. We're going to go over his career uh, throughout the reign of James I. And we're also going to get into the sources, uh, the source material that we're using for these episodes. So I hope you will join me. I hope it won't take too long for the second half to come out. We are working on it. And uh, until then, thank you for listening. This has been A History of Maryland with Jared Books. Rock on.